Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think most of us recognize the tendency at times to uh, condemn the president and glorify the past. Uh, but the reality of it is um, there's probably more continuity between the way things were and the way they are than we sometimes recognize. It's easy for us to, to think the good old days were gooder than they actually were. And uh, when we think about the New Testament, sometimes the way folks go is that they think the church thrived in the first century because the world was somehow more receptive or more conducive to the advance of the gospel than it is today. And really, there couldn't be anything farther from the truth in terms of where the world was, uh, in terms of, of the wickedness and pagan realities of it. Uh, The New Testament church faced a pagan culture which was controlled by idolatry and immorality. And there was uh, absolute concentrations of those things. And the churches in the New Testament were far from perfect. The city of Corinth was notoriously wicked, and the church at Corinth was notoriously flawed. Uh, Yet, in many ways, it's of great value for us to consider. I mean, the city was prosperous, but at the same time uh, was profligate in terms of of moral things. Uh, A a renowned uh, New Testament scholar, Gordon Fee, said this, Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, it, it was a city... Uh, that boasted many temples, but one of which was to the goddess of love that uh, reportedly had close to a thousand priestesses that served as prostitutes that every evening would go out and wander through the city, uh, enticing the city into immorality. I mean, it, it was a wicked place. And the church at Corinth was anything but the kind of church that you and I would look at and go, hey, let's put them on the poster for ideal. I mean, they, they, were, uh, they were, in fact, uh, sadly, seeming to be more shaped at times by the culture around them than by the gospel. And, and that's why Paul writes this letter, is he wants them to see that, that the, the, the word of God, the good news about Jesus Christ should actually be shaping their thinking and living and their gathering. And, and in that way, it, it is a, a wonderful text of scripture uh, for God's people at all times to consider. So I've preached a lot of different messages from 1 Corinthians and and not gone though uh, from stem to stern through it. And it's a, it's a powerful book. You can see from the slide that I've sort of titled, not sort of, I have titled the series, Walking with Christ in a Corinthian World. Because more and more we're living in a culture that is shaped like theirs. And the tendency is for the church of Jesus Christ in our day to again, starting to be shaped by the culture around it more than the word of God that is to instruct us and help us think through how we would, we, we would view life. This 
letter is uh, one of several by Paul to this church at Corinth uh, that he established when he was preaching on his second missionary journey. Uh, Corinth is located down to toward the bottom of what we call modern Greece, and he was there probably in like AD 50 to 52 and planted the church at Corinth, and this letter is written probably about three years after that, so around 55 AD, so that means just three decades after Jesus had gone back to heaven, right? So still pretty early in what we would call church history. This was a congregation that was in a pivotal city because it was on the trade routes between Rome and Asia, and therefore it became a, a, a commercial center and where commercial prosperity comes, comes everything else that comes with it. And, and it was there that God did a great work to gather an assembly of people uh, that were worshipers of Jesus Christ. The letter seems to have been prompted by some reports that the Apostle Paul received uh, from, from folks associated with Corinth. I want to show you how the book uh, highlights that for us. You're in chapter 1. Uh, drop down to verse 11. And here's Paul's words, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So, so Paul had received word from, from Chloe's, uh, those associated with Chloe in some way, either her household or her people, that there were quarrels among them. Look at chapter five and verse one. Probably in the same report, notice it says 5.1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. So he's heard a report about disunity and about immorality in the church. Uh, but notice also in chapter 7 and verse 1, it's not just that he received a report, probably from uh, parts of his ministry team that had returned to him, we know from chapter 16, but he also, they brought a letter to him. Notice in verse seven, uh, 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So they had sent a letter to Timothy or to, to Paul uh, asking him questions, probably expressing some things that, that were misunderstandings of what he had written previously. We know that from chapter 5 or were questions that they were facing about how they should live it within their culture, how they should handle certain issues that, that were confronting them. And so it's the combination of the report and the letter that sort of supplies the structure of this letter. But on your way back to chapter one, stop in chapter four, because also practically there's this uh, upcoming visit to them of Timothy. Notice 4.17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. So uh, one of the things occasionally we'll, I'll remind you or you'll be aware of is that the letters we have in the New Testament are, are really, they're sometimes called occasional documents, right? They're, they're, they're prompted by some occasion. And so they address timely circumstances that were tied to that occasion. So that's what I just was showing you. What were 
What were the things that prompted Paul to write this letter? Well, his friends, chapter 16, come to visit him and they tell Paul about what's going on in the church, the kinds of disunity there, the problems that are there, the the issues that are happening within the church, and that prompts Paul to write. But they also brought a letter that had a bunch of questions for Paul. And so his letter starts with the some of the problems, but then moves to address one after another the questions and concerns that had come up. And, and here's we, where we find uh, the, the wonderful convergence of providence and revelation, right? The problems at Corinth were of the kind that God knew his people in all generations would need to hear his word about. Right, that, that, that God knew 2000 years ago almost that the kinds of things we would be facing in 2023 are things that his people need to be prepared for. And so, so he has Paul write a letter and explain it to them. And Paul sends his son in the faith, Timothy, to deliver it. So, so report comes. Paul writes the letter, dispatches Timothy to deliver it to them. Right, and that, and that's what we have here in what we call the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Even though when we come to chapter five, sometime down the road, we'll find it's not actually his first letter. He had written them previously and that had prompted some of the questions. So, but this one in God's will has been preserved for us as a part of the, the canon of scripture. Look back now to chapter one. I'm going to read verses one through three. One, one. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse one is sort of Paul's standard uh, opening to his letters in which he identifies himself. And as well, in this particular case, I think is, uh, is positioning himself as one who is an authoritative spokesman for God. He emphasizes his appointment and his auth- uh, apostleship in a way that um, has some, some uniqueness in terms of his letters because he's trying to establish right off the bat uh, that the things that he's going to write to them are rooted ultimately in God's will for them, that God has made Paul an official spokesman on his behalf. He here uh, says called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which isn't the normal way in which he opens his letter. He usually just says an apostle or an apostle by the will of God, the next part of it, but only in the Corinthian correspondence and Romans does he put called right at the front end of it. He mentions it in Galatians, another point of a conflict kind of letter where he talks about that he wasn't called by the will of men, but by God, God called him. But it's, so it's clear that Paul is trying to establish here that this is God's 
work to put him in this position. It was the, the sovereign call of God that has made him an apostle. And he is an apostle by the will of God. It's, it's God's work, not his own. And you'll see as we work through the book, or if you're familiar with it, that it probably, um, it is not an understatement to say that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is tense, right? That, that there are people at Corinth who actually would be viewed as opponents of the Apostle Paul. And so what Paul is doing here is trying to establish himself in, in the proper place of divinely given authority so he can speak to them in, with the clarity that he needs to. I mean, we, you know, um, we don't like the phrase pulling rank, right? But, but that's really what Paul is doing. But he's not pulling it for himself. He's actually an ambassador of Christ. So it'd be more viewed like that if, you know, if an ambassador of the United States stands in the middle of a diplomatic conversation with somebody else and, and he says, I'm speaking on behalf of our government. He's not trying to make himself important. He's trying to highlight the authority which is behind him. And that's what Paul's doing. He's going to stand up to the Corinthians and at some point say very hard things, at least twice, and, and implied a third time is that, that they should be ashamed of how they're operating. Right? He says, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Right? So, so he's, he's confronting them from the standpoint of an authority given to him by God and to be used for Jesus Christ, right? He's called as an apostle by the will of God. That is, he's been given this authority by God and it's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's gotten it from God and he's using it for Jesus Christ. Paul is not on any kind of an ego trip as becomes clear as he conducts his ministry that he actually, in fact, um, is unwilling to disown the weakness that they despise. He actually refuses to go along with their effort to have uh, the sort of beautiful people approach. He's committed to following Christ and that's a path that came with rejection and suffering and difficulty. He wants them to know though, that he is a designated, appointed spokesman for the Lord. Notice Sosthenes there. This is possibly the Sosthenes that's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Uh, we don't, I mean, we don't know for sure because it doesn't say this is him. Right? So the fact that it's used in Acts 18 and it's used here suggests that because Acts 18 is where Paul's at Corinth. So, so it's probable or possible at least that, that that's the point of it. Um, and therefore they would know him, right? It'd be like if, you know, you got a letter from somebody and all it did was say, and, and Dave says hi, right? I mean, you know who Dave is. Someone reading the letter 2,000 years later might be going, which Dave is he talking about, right? So, so the reality of it is that, that it's, but it's not that important for us to understand. And 
What we should probably see here, I think the best way to understand it is what we know from Paul's letters that he, he would dictate them and somebody else would transcribe them, right? They were, they, they were in, in a secretary, uh, that would be taking it down for them. And often Paul would name that person. And probably that's what's going on here. And, and a great illustration of, of how that might be functioning. Look down to verse 14 of chapter one. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. See, see what verse 16 is? Here's, I mean, I'm not trying to be irreverent about it, but here's Paul dictating this letter, and Sosthenes is writing it down, and Paul goes, I baptized none of you. And Sosthenes, you did, you did the household of Stephanus. Oh, then verse 16 comes in, right? And, and, and that's the point of it. It's sort of a dynamic process as Paul is dictating this letter to Sosthenes to write it down, and, and that's the way it carried through. That's why sometimes you'll find at the end of his letters that he signs them with his own hand, and it's a distinguishing mark of his because the writing is actually in the hand of another person, right? He's... He's the one who's the author. Someone else is being his recorder of it. And that's probably the role that Sosthenes is playing it. The heart of what I'd like us to look at this morning is verse two, because I believe what Paul does here in this verse is actually lay down some foundation for the rest of the letter. He wants to, to help start putting things into motion for what he's going to say and and in so doing, uh, help them begin to shift their perspective right away. So look at again in verse two. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. I'd like to draw out four truths from this verse that are really sort of parts of a long sentence to help us understand, I think, what Paul is getting at here. The first is this, is that believers form a people or congregation. Believers, individuals, form a people or a congregation that is a group. And, and you can see that in the way the language is. Let's take the believers part. In verse 2, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are saints by calling or called to be holy. Okay, so he's talking about people, all who in every place. So, so he's not, he's not uh, addressing them though as just individuals, but also as a collective, the, the church of God. All right, so there are people who have been sanctified and are called to be saints and who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're all over the place. But at Corinth, this collection of individuals is called the congregation of God or the assembly of God, or like our English translations tend to do, the church of God. But it really is a word that means congregation or assembly, right? It's it's a group of people. And again, that... Uh, 
what we need to recognize is, is that that actually is sort of laying down uh, a layer of truth that's going to be seen, I think, to be very important in the rest of the letter because it highlights God's purpose to gather a people for his name, like Acts chapter 15 and verse 14 says, that God has chosen from among the nations to gather a people for his name. Notice it's not gather, gather people, but a people because it's tied to the redemptive work of Christ who gave himself up for his bride, the church, a group of people, right? That he is forming a new community, Ephesians chapter two says, that includes both Jews and Gentiles. And Galatians two says both slave and free, right? That that there is actually... A, a gathering of people who form one new body for Christ from every nation, from every strata within those nations, right? That, that God is doing something to gather a group, which will be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people that are his. He has other sheep, he says in John 16, which are not of this fold, Israel. Them will I also bring and they will hear my voice and they shall be one flock with one shepherd. All right, that's important to understand because we, we, and it certainly seems like the Corinthians, live with such an individualized kind of perspective that we can actually sort of privatize our relationship with God. It's about me and my religious experience and my knowledge of God, my beliefs, my behavior. And they were doing that to such an extent at Corinth that they were actually fragmenting the church through disunity, but also they were having a disposition toward other parts of the body, which was marked by cavalier disregard. And Paul wants to start right at the beginning showing them that they in fact are a people. They don't lose their individual identity, but they find their proper place within the congregation of God's people. And and it's only in the Corinthian letters right, that they're called the church of God in the opening. He writes to the saints, He writes to the believers, but here it's to the church of God. And that prepares the groundwork, I think, to challenge the disunity and disregard for other members of the body. So believers form a people or a congregation. Second truth, that belongs to God. Notice in verse two, to the church of God, that it is... It is, in fact, God's church, right? Their location is not as important as their position in relationship to God. And that's emphasized two ways in verse two. The first is by those two simple words, the church of God or God's church. It's in this letter more than any other in in the New Testament. Paul 
says it here as the church of God in chapter 10, verse 32. He talks about the church of God in chapter 11, verse, I think it's 19. He says churches of God, verse 22, the church of God. In 15.9, he says, I persecuted the church of God. Okay, that's, that's, that's uh, statistically a, ma- a massive amount of piling up of that phrase compared to any of his other letters. He's really emphasizing for them that the church at Corinth is God's church, right? That it belongs to God. He will also say in chapter three that it is God's temple, right? That, that they are the dwelling place for God by the spirit and that that temple is very important to God. So he wants them to understand that, that the church is not humans. It's God's. He purchased it with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the blood of his son. So, so he purchased the church with the blood of Christ. It's the temple for his dwelling, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So he deserves to be honored. He rules over it, and he will protect it. The warning in chapter 3 is that if someone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. In chapter 11, The blatant disregard that they are having for the body of Christ, Paul says, for this reason, some among you are sick and some even sleep. That is, God has taken their lives. I mean, think about that. I mean, God cares so much for his church that when people attempt to destroy it, he sets himself against them. That if they show utter disregard for it, like they're doing in chapter 11, that God chastises them through illness and even death. And that's how much the church matters to God, which shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, Christ died for her. If Christ would lay down his life for the church, then it's not an insignificant thing. It's, it's absolutely vital. And so Paul stakes out that ground right at the beginning saying, this is the church of God at Corinth. All right? But notice also in verse two, there's two other ways in which he highlights the fact that they belong to God. Notice he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, Saints by calling are called to be saints. The word sanctified there is talking about consecrating something or setting apart for a sacred use or purpose, right? It would be picking up imagery from the Old Testament where uh, they would take the, the things that would be used in the tabernacle and then in the temple and they would be consecrated or set apart or even in the conquest, the whole city of Jericho was set apart to God. It was actually designated or devoted to him, right? So something that was sanctified in that regard was set apart to God. So he's saying about believers that they are those who are sanctified. They're set apart for God. He uses a 
a verb tense that talks about a past action with continuing results. So it no doubt is referring to their conversion through the gospel, that when, when they heard the gospel and they responded to it, it was the work of God sanctifying them, setting himself, setting them apart for himself. So if I jump into theological terms, sometimes we talk about definitive sanctification or positional sanctification where we are made right with God and set apart for him. And then we talk about progressive sanctification. That is the process by which we are actually being made holy. He's talking here about that kind of definitive work. God set you apart for himself. It's another way of underscoring that it's the church of God, those who have been set apart for God or consecrated to God in connection to Jesus Christ. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, which some of you may have other translations on that. And that's, I think, what, what's happening here is the word's actually called to be holy ones, right? The older way of saying that was to say saint, and, and it simply means uh, someone who's marked by this kind of holiness. But the thing that's the problem with that is that, that there's an entire fabric of false teaching that makes a distinction between all believers and the saints. I mean, sometimes we say that practically. I mean, that person's a saint, right? I don't think I've ever had that said about me, but I've heard it said, right? But what we'll do is we'll actually go, I mean, actually someone just was going through this process uh, recently. You know, they get canonized as a saint. And actually one of our neighbors told us about some part of a bone, right? That was from that person that was at their church. They go pray in front of the bone because this was a saint and you could get some special answer from it, right? So, so Catholicism created this tiered system that at some point the church could make you officially a saint. But until that happens, you're not that. Well, notice he's talking here about everyone who's called on the name of our Lord Jesus, right? I mean, see the flow of it? Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. There are no saints and ain'ts, right? But the emphasis really is the holiness part of it. I mean, that's why, actually, I never talk about St. Paul or St. Augustine or St. Jerome unless I was going to start talking about everybody like that. Because they're no different than any of us. Right? Paul is not a saint and you're not a saint. Right? Remember, Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, from Paul to the saints at Philippi. And here's the saints at Corinth. Paul isn't saying, hey, I'm something you're not, right? So in English, we've picked that up to try and sort of mark people off, but it's not a theological framework within which to view people. This is really the difference between an unbeliever and a believer, right? Someone who doesn't call the name of the Lord and someone who does. And if they do, it's because they've been sanctified, the work of God to set them apart in Christ Jesus. And when he set them apart in relationship to Christ Jesus, they were also called to be holy ones, to live a life of holiness. 
to reflect the character of the one who called them. Remember how Peter says it? Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Right? Your father is holy, so you should reflect his holiness. And that's what he's talking about here, that you and I are to be holy people, not not some special category of Christian, but all who are in Christ. So the descriptions in verse 2 are intended to highlight their relationship to God, they're the church of God, and to each other. They've all been sanctified in Christ Jesus, and they are all called to be holy ones or saints. And in fact, it, it, it uh, implies their relationship to the world around them too. The congregation belongs to God and not any particular individual or group rallying under some banner. I mean, within just a short space, it's going to be, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of the Lord. And Paul's going to go away with that nonsense. It's the church of God, right? It's his church. It's not the the banner of who your hero or celebrity is. It's it's God's church, right? And it's the congregation of God's people. And believers have been set apart by God for his purposes, the chief of which is to be holy like God is holy. Because why did Christ die for the church? So that he might sanctify her. And that having washed her by the water of the word, he might present her to himself without blame, holy and without blemish. That's God's purpose for the church. That's why we're called to be saints or holy ones because God has set us apart for that purpose. And Paul wants to start right there with them because there's some atrocious, immoral activity happening at Corinth all around the church, and sadly, even within the church. And it's radically contradictory to God's right to claim the church and rule over the church. And so he wants to start establishing that framework from the very beginning. So they are believers that form a people that belongs to God Thirdly, under the lordship of Christ. Notice in the verse it says, calling, call on the name of the Lord. What makes them different than any other religious groups in Corinth, whether Gentile or Jewish? I mean, I mean, they had they had they had temples to Aphrodite, to Apollo, to all the stuff. I mean, they had they had all your you know, soup to nuts, pagan idolatry, temples and worship. You have Jews at Corinth. What makes them different? The distinctive thing that makes them different is that they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, And that's why he'll say later in this book, you can't confess Jesus as Lord apart from the Spirit. Right, It is actually their relationship to the Lordship of Jesus Christ which makes them distinct. And that phrase there in verse two, call in the name of the Lord is both a statement of faith. Remember Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Right? So it's a statement of faith in, in Jesus as the Lord. You confess him as Lord, call on his name. But it's also a description of their worship, that they actually are coming to God through the name of Christ. And that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, has its trail all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, right? And creation 1 and 2, 3, the fall, chapter 4, Cain and Abel, and then God gives them another son. And the last statement of chapter 4 is, and then began men to call on the name of the Lord. That is, out of the midst of this brokenness of sin, people began to recognize the Lord and call on his name. That's, that's this verse, right? There are people that call on the name of the Lord, those who have identified themselves as the followers of Jesus Christ, because his name as Peter will preach in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you do not call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. And that's because the commission is to go out and preach. And listen to what Peter tells Cornelius. He says, through his name, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So, so Jesus commissioned the apostles to go and preach what Jesus had done in his death, burial, and resurrection because he was the son of God and then say it's through his name, through his name that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. But it, it didn't start with Peter. The end of the book of Luke Jesus' words to the apostles was that repentance, Luke 24, 47, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Right? So, so Paul has showed up at Corinth and it said, there is, there is a conflict between you and your creator. And God has appointed a day in which he is going to judge all the living. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Christ. And when he comes back, your only hope is that you have put your trust in him and receive from him the forgiveness of your sins so that you will not be judged with those who have defied him. I mean, that's what he preached. He stood at Thessalonica and said that, that, that God is going to send his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, to rescue us from the wrath to come. How are you rescued from the wrath to come? By having the sins, which are the object of God's wrath, forgiven. And where is that forgiveness found? It's found only in the name of Jesus Christ. In, in a very real way, what we need to see in the message of the gospel is, if I can obliterate what I was just pointing out between the sides, but see it this way. The kingdoms of this world, all people in every place have an appointment with the Son of God who's coming from heaven, who has been 
appointed the judge of the living and the dead and that God has set a day when he will exercise that judgment and he furnished proof of it by raising him from the dead. Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the earth, the living and the dead. So it's not just the people who are alive when he gets back, but everyone who has ever lived is going to have to stand before the judgment of Christ. And here's what the gospel is. It's a message sent to those who are God's enemy with terms of surrender. With terms of rescue. It's, it's picture like the nation of Israel coming into the promised land and going to destroy Jericho but there's someone in Jericho who actually believes in the God of Israel has been told you need to hang a scarlet thread down from your window or you will be judged just as everybody else. And God saves Rahab because she believed Hebrews 11. And, and the announcement of the gospel is that announcement. You have sinned against God This world has defied him and rebelled against him. And Jesus is the one who has been made Lord in Christ. And one day he's going to rule on this earth in righteousness. When he comes, he's going to come in fiery judgment. If you want to be rescued from the wrath of God, he is ready to rescue you. He has promised to be merciful. He will forgive every one of your sins against him if you will but repent and believe and call on his name because forgiveness is found in Jesus. And the church at Corinth was a gathering every Lord's Day of people who had called on the name of the Lord. They came together because they shared this common belief that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the one who has purchased redemption for them. He is the one who's provided forgiveness of sins. Because he's done those things, he's their Lord. And you know what Paul's going to say throughout this letter? If he's your Lord, why are you living like that? Don't you know that you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Don't you realize that he is the one who redeemed you? Shouldn't you live for him? Right? That's why he's saying this right at the beginning of the book is to help them see that and understand that. Salvation is redemption, and redemption means ownership. We're his. We call him as Lord. Notice now the last part of verse 2, because here's the fourth part of it. They are connected to other believers by this common confession. Notice he says, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, or theirs and ours. I think it's right to say it's the Lordship of Christ. So, so here's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to help them see that the congregation at Corinth is just one among many 
in the work of Christ as he builds his church. They are not above any other church, and they should recognize that the will of God in the scriptures applies to all churches. And here's why I say it that way, is you saw, I think, in verse 17 of chapter 4, that he said, I'm going to send Timothy, my child in the faith, to teach you and remind you of my teaching in all the churches. Right? Corinth is saying, oh, yeah, we're special. We're unique. And, and Paul's going, no, no, here's what applies to all the churches of God. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 11 and verse 16 when they're debating some elements of worship. And he says, this is true in all the churches of God. Right, And the same thing's going to show up in chapter 14 and verse 33 when he says this is true for all the churches of God. Right, Their tendency was to see themselves as special and unique. And well, yeah, sure, those other folks might want to follow Paul, but we're more knowledgeable, like in 8 through 10. Or... We're having more special works among us, like 12 through 14. And they were ready to try and separate and distinguish themselves from the work of God that was happening among all the churches and the will of God for all churches. And Paul's saying, no. So these four descriptions that I've seen in here, that they, they, that believers form a people or congregation which belongs to God under the lordship of Jesus Christ that is connected to all other assemblies by a common confession are really aimed, if I could put it this way, at the holiness and humility of the church at Corinth. That what God wants them to be is holy people and humble because they live in a perverse and proud world. And that perversion and that pride was seeping its way into the assembly at Corinth. And God wants them to be holy. He wants them to be humble, submitted to the Lordship of Christ, recognizing God's place over the church. Now notice verse three, because he gives a Christianized greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really a prayer wish. Paul's saying, here's what I want for you. I want grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace is the source of all of God's blessings and peace probably could be used as a summary of them all. Establishing peace with God that comes from the Father through the Son to them. So there's people there that reject Paul's authority. They're speaking against Paul. The church is full of conflict. The church has gross immorality happening. It's, it's got all kinds of cliques and divisiveness. Paul wants to reposition them under God. And here's what Paul's sincere wish for them is. Grace and peace. Because it's not really about Paul saying, hey, get in line. I'm the apostle. It's actually that he knows the pathways that they're taking are going to take them away from the grace of God 
and they're going to be fighting contrary to the peace of God. So he wants them to enjoy the blessings that come from God's grace and result in a peace that is not possible in this world because it's peace with God and peace from God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the timelessness of your word, that, that it is your will for your people at all times and in all places. And so give us much fruitfulness in the study of this letter. May we want to hear what you have to say to the church at Corinth because you've said it for us. It's written for our edification, for our progress in growth and service. Lord, help us as we live in a world which seems to be sliding faster and faster into decay to be reminded that none of that can hinder your purposes and the work that you're doing to call out a people for your name. Help us to be reminded of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace which is found in him and peace with you because he is our Lord. May you open our hearts to this truth. May you especially draw people closer to yourself through it. Draw us closer to one another as your people. And may you open the eyes of those who have yet to see the danger of their sinful condition and their need for forgiveness from Jesus before they meet him. And work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.